Welcome to Adventology, the podcast dedicated to helping you be ready for Jesus. Here now is the host of Adventology, Travis Walker. Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventology. As you know, everything we do on this podcast is designed to help you be ready for Jesus. Today's episode is entitled, The Temptation and the Fall of man, and I can't wait to get into it today. We're going to be covering topics such as what is truth. We're going to be looking at the origin of spiritualism, as well as the consequences of the fall on the nature of man. And uh, these are all foundational topics that we're going to be referring back to again and again as we study the Bible and so you're not going to want to miss it. But before we do that, I want to get into some feedback we got off Instagram from Matthew. Matthew responded to one of our reels with the question that I had never heard before. And he asked this, how many times in the New Testament does it mention the Sabbath? Thank you, Matthew. Well, I had to look this up. I didn't know off the top of my head. And when I looked it up, I found out that there were 52 verses in the New Testament that actually mentioned the Sabbath, and there were three of them that mentioned it twice for a total of 55 mentions in the New Testament. Now, this is significant for many reasons. A lot of people have this idea that the Sabbath is only relevant in the Old Testament, but for New Testament or New Covenant Christians, the Sabbath has no relevance. Well, It's interesting because many of these verses that mention the Sabbath actually are in the Gospels, actually have to do with Jesus. They have to do with things that Jesus said. It has to do with things that Jesus did. And and it's really by looking at these that we can get a clear understanding of how Christians should observe the Sabbath as well. So let's look at a few of these, and I think we will get some insight from them. One is in Mark chapter 2, verses 27 through 28, and it says this, And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. I find this one really interesting because there are so many people today who believe the first day of the week or Sunday is the Lord's day. But there's no place in the Bible that ever mentions Sunday or the first day in connection to being connected to the Lord. In fact, right here, we see Jesus saying that the Sabbath is the day that he is Lord of. And we find that that is consistent throughout the Bible. Isaiah 58, we find the same declaration. And that makes sense. Why? Because Jesus, being Lord of the Sabbath, would imply that he's also the creator of the Sabbath. And we know from our early episodes in this season that Jesus was our creator. He created the heavens and the earth, and everything that we see, everything that we experience here on this earth was created through him. And that means he was also the giver of the Ten Commandments. He was the one who rested on the seventh day. It is his day, therefore he is Lord of that day. 
Now, there are reasons why people believe that the first day of the week or Sunday is the Lord's day. But that was a change that took place in early Christianity when the Roman Empire adopted Christianity as part of their national religion. And so we'll have to cover more of that later. But I wanted to look at another verse too, right here in Matthew chapter 12, verse 12. It says here, therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And uh, here's an answer to the question about what you should do or can do on the Sabbath. You know, people often accuse Sabbath keepers of works because they see the Sabbath as a restrictive day. But Jesus is offering no restriction to the day. In his own example, he is showing how to live the day. It is to be a day that we do good. And it's a day that actually complements the two great commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. That is why we worship the Lord on the the seventh day. And we honor it by keeping it holy because he is our God. But then we find that Jesus said it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, which lines up with the second great commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the Sabbath was always meant to be a day that we reach out to our brother and sister. It'd be a day of fellowship, a day to heal, because Jesus did so many of his miracles on the Sabbath. And that's why he was so often accused of breaking the Sabbath, because the Jews had this narrow idea of what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. And that's what was making the Sabbath a burden. But Jesus came to set men free from the burden of tradition and to open the day up to what it was truly meant to be, a day of blessing, a day that we spend time with God, with each other, and in nature. And uh, therefore, we get to the third verse I wanted to look at that mentions the Sabbath in the New Testament, Luke chapter 4, verse 16. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. So right here we find a text that indicates that Jesus' custom was worshiping on the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus went to church every Sabbath, every Saturday, every seventh day. And this wasn't just true for him. It was also true for every other writer of the New Testament. Every writer in the Bible, for that matter, kept the seventh-day Sabbath holy. And so it was the custom of all to do this. This is not some kind of obscure idea. You know, keeping the Sabbath is going back to the roots of Christianity. It's going back to the roots of the religion that has been passed down from generation to generation. And although the Sabbath has been lost sight of by many, clearly when you go and investigate it for yourself, you're going to see that there is much more evidence in history around keeping the Sabbath than there is or keeping Sunday, especially when we look at the Bible. So those are some of the thoughts I had in relation to Matthew's question about how often the Sabbath was mentioned in the New Testament. If you have a question, please reach out to me at Travis at Aventology.com, or you can follow me on Instagram at Pastor T Walk. I would love to connect with you. I'd love to interact with you. That's what makes doing this podcast fun. Really, it's for you. 
And uh, I really appreciate all of your support. All right, well, let's get right into the topic of today, the temptation and the fall of man. And so we're going to start by just kind of reviewing where we have been. Now, of course, in Genesis chapter 2, we are introduced to two trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And of course, we are told that as long as Adam and Eve would eat from the tree of life, that they would live forever. But if they would eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was in the midst of the garden as well, they would surely die. So this warning was given to them clearly in Genesis chapter 2. And if they had avoided that tree, they would have lived in harmony with God throughout eternity. But we get into Genesis chapter 3, and apparently we don't know how much time went by, but at some point Eve gets too close to the tree, and all of a sudden she looks up into the tree, staring at the fruit, and there before her eyes is this beautiful winged serpent. Now, we can only imagine what this winged serpent looked like, But if that wasn't enough, this winged serpent begins talking to her. And when I think of a winged serpent, I think of a dragon. And so there's a dragon essentially here talking to Eve. And this dragon must have been so beautiful to behold that she becomes mesmerized by it. Now, let's look exactly at this conversation because this is where the whole foundation for the devil's lie and deception here on the earth was laid down. And so let's look here at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so he asks this question And, of course, she knows the answer to the question. She responds and says, "Um, no, God said we could eat of every tree in the garden except just not this one. Because if we eat from this tree, God has said we will surely die. And so she knows the truth. But what the devil is trying to get her to contemplate is maybe, just maybe, God is hiding something from you. Maybe he is setting a test to see if you're brave enough to actually eat of this fruit. And by eating of it, you will open up a whole new portal of reality, a whole new portal of experience. And you will be brought into this higher state of being than you can even imagine. And so as he is essentially reading her face and kind of trying to understand what she might be thinking. He corresponds her response with a straight-up lie. And he contradicts the word of God. And he says, you will not surely die. Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. And essentially, now he is pointing to this reality that if she would just trust him, that her life would be better, that she would be changed, that her eyes would be open, that she herself would become like God. And I think the devil continues to use this 
temptation with success, even to this very day. I mean, you hear it all the time, right? That the truth is in you. Follow your own heart, right? The only truth you need is the truth inside you. You know, today we even have a name for this. It's called postmodernity or postmodernism. And so in postmodernity, they teach that truth is not absolute, that truth is in fact relative. And if the Bible says something, it may be a truth, but it's not the truth, right? Because the truth is your truth, and all truths lead to the same place in the end. So what matters is that you follow a truth that makes sense to you. That sounds appealing, right? It sounds like something that we would all want. Now, the only problem with this lie is that it's based on contradicting the reality of death, right? So the devil, remember, the first lie he said was, you will not surely die if you eat from this tree of knowledge of good and evil. But then what happens? Of course, we know that Eve and every other human being who has existed and lived since that time has lived and died. And so death itself proves that the devil was lying. So why has he been so successful in deceiving man? Well, the reason for that is he is successfully taught that death isn't actually real. He has introduced this other doctrine called the immortality of the soul. And in the doctrine of the immortality of the soul, you actually don't ever die. Your body may die, but your spirit goes on living, goes up, it goes down, it floats around, but it's never actually dead. And so in being successful in teaching that the spirit never dies, that there's some sort of part of you that is immortal, then by doing so, he essentially undercuts the whole foundation of God's government. Because if there is no death, then there is no sin. Yet the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. And again, if there is no sin, then there is no law. And yet the Bible says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, that sin is the transgression of the law. And if there is no law, then there is no truth. There is no creator. There is no authority. You become the authority. You become the arbitrator of truth. And once you become the authority, once you become the arbitrator of truth, then the devil has complete control over us. And this is really the heart of the great controversy. The controversy is who will we believe? Who is telling the truth? God or Satan? And this has been the challenge ever since this interaction between Eve and the serpent, right? We are more inclined now to believe the devil 
than believing God. And yet, God doesn't give up on us. Praise the Lord. You know, he continues to send truth. He gives us the word of God. But if that wasn't enough, then he sends his only begotten son to be the incarnation of the truth, to not only live it, but teach it. And when we look at the life of Jesus, we can see the truth. We can acknowledge the truth. Our spirit tells us, even if we deny it. And so what does Jesus say? He says that you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So the question is, if we follow Jesus, his promise is that we will follow the truth. And what is the benefit of following the truth? Well, later on, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. So the benefit of following the truth is we follow Jesus, and the benefit of following Jesus is we are led back to relationship with the Father. And then once we have been reconnected with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are reconnected with the tree of life itself. That's the ultimate promise, right? In the book of Revelation, we see that the tree that had been lost because of sin in Genesis chapter 3 is restored in heaven. And then once again, we are able to eat from the tree of life. We're able to partake of its life-giving power and our eternal life is secured Why? Because the truth has been written on our hearts. And the condition since the beginning for eating from that tree of life was, in fact, obedience to God and his commandments. So, unfortunately, we know what happened in the story. Eve didn't believe God. And then we find this interesting quote from the book Patriarchs and Prophets. You know, I've been encouraging you to download this book to follow along as a companion And there's a link to it in our show notes if you haven't done so yet. But in the third chapter on page 55, we read this. Eve really believed the words of Satan, but her belief did not save her from the penalty of sin. She disbelieved the words of God, and this is what led to her fall. In the judgment, men will not be condemned because they conscientiously believed a lie but because they did not believe the truth. Wow. You know, I think that's so important to really contemplate. It's not that God is condemning us for believing the lie. Jesus didn't come to condemn. He came to save. But what are we condemned for? We're condemned because when the light is shining on us. We chose darkness rather than light. The condemnation is that we chose to believe the lie instead of the truth. We could have believed the truth, but we chose not to. And the truth is, most are going to be lost because they chose to be lost, because they chose to believe the lie. Now, how do we know that? Let's just go back to our story In Genesis 3, verse 6. 
So when the women saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. So she believed the serpent because his words supported what her senses were telling her, right? Everything she saw looked good. It looks good, it sounds good, it smells good, it tastes good, it feels good. Then it just must be good. And so human reasoning based on feeling will always lead to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The Bible says in Proverbs that there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end is the way of death. And so Jesus again instructs us, In his beautiful Sermon on the Mount, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Why are there so few that find eternal life? Why? Because in order to be saved, we have to believe the word of God first before we believe what our senses are telling us. And the reason so many will be lost is because they chose to believe their senses before they believed what God said. So what were the consequences of the fall? we find the first thing was a disconnection between them and God. In fact, they had been in harmony with him. They loved him. They always wanted to be with him. But after they ate from the fruit, the Bible tells us that God came down looking for them. And instead of coming out to meet him like they always had, they were hiding. And that's what sin does. It causes us to hide from God. It causes us to believe that God's out to get us. And when God coaxes them out of the woods and brings them before judgment, again, another consequence of the fall was pride. You know, when Adam is asked why he did this, instead of taking ownership of it and and apologizing, repenting, he points to the woman. And essentially by pointing to the woman, he's blaming God because he said, hey, this woman that you gave me, she caused me to sin. And the woman does the same thing. She doesn't take responsibility. She points to the serpent and said, well, the serpent caused me to sin. And essentially, both of them are saying the same thing. God, you are the reason why we sinned. If you hadn't done what you did, we wouldn't have done what we did. They didn't want to take responsibility for what they did. And unfortunately, because of that, God had to bring a curse. God cursed the land. God cursed the animals. The relationship that had been in perfect harmony between Adam and Eve was broken. And so there was this curse that fell on all of us, right? The animals that used to be in harmony now were afraid. The land, which used to give its fruit with barely any effort, now required toil and sweat. And the ultimate curse was the curse on their bodies, right? Because of losing access to the tree of life, now Adam and Eve would experience pain, sickness, suffering, and ultimately death. 
And so we see that the ultimate consequence of the fall wasn't just that our bodies were now subject to death because we lost access to the tree of life, but that our hearts, our moral natures had been changed, right? You know, before the law was written in our hearts, before we naturally exuded this fruits of the Spirit, you know, we lived in harmony with God. We lived love and love lived through us. But after the fall, our nature's chained to being naturally selfish, right? And the Bible in the New Testament describes this new nature as the flesh. And this flesh nature, according to Romans chapter 8, is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. It is, in fact, it says it's at enmity with God. We're at war with God by nature. And so this nature is the thing more than anything else that God has to change in us if we are going to experience eternal life. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, if you want to be saved, you have to be born again. Only those who have been born again have any hope of overcoming the ultimate consequence of sin, which is eternal death. But thank God we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who overcame it for us. You know, he was trying to explain this to Nicodemus, you know, in John chapter 3. And he said, just like the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And why is that? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him, should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, the hope for humanity, the hope for all of us, is in this reborn state that happens because of what Jesus did for us. And you think about it, what did Jesus do on the cross? You know, the first thing he said was, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Friend, I don't care what you've done in your life. Jesus forgives you. The sin that so easily ensnares us has ensnared all of us. None of us are guiltless. And so Jesus looks at you on the cross and says, Father, forgive them. And when you accept that forgiveness, guess what? He looks at you as if you've never sinned. That's what I love. Justified. Just if I'd never sinned. That's the promise. But then what happened? Then, because he accepted your sin on himself, he took the blame. He did ultimately take the blame that Adam and Eve pointed the finger at him in the garden. He said, yeah, I wasn't to blame, but I'll take it. And because of that, he experienced the separation from the Father in a way that we'll never understand. And he cried out, my Father, my Father, why hast thou forsaken me? In that dark moment, he bore the penalty of sin in his body. And although we don't quite understand the significance of what we read in the Gospels describing those few hours on the cross, we do know the ultimate result, which was his last words. It is finished. Friend, it is finished. Whatever sin that you have committed, God has not only forgiven it, but he's washed it away. He's buried it into the ground. 
And so therefore you can be raised up into newness of life just as Jesus was on the third day. And so my hope and my prayer for you today is you accept this gift. So if you have any specific questions about anything we've covered, please feel free to reach out to me at travis at aventology.com. If you were blessed by today's episode, please rate and review us. Give us a one sentence or two sentence review. Give us five stars. It really helps others find this podcast. And by reviewing this podcast, you make it more likely that someone else will find it as well. So what did this episode have to do with being ready for Jesus? Well, number one, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 24 that we need to be aware of deception in the last days. The Bible tells us that if we believe our senses, that we are more likely to be deceived because the devil is going to come with strong delusion to deceive, if possible, the very elect. And so the only way we're going to be able to overcome that deception is by trusting the word of God and the word of God alone. And of course, the way that the devil is going to deceive most of the world is through spiritualism, through this idea that the dead are not really dead. And so there's going to be those who appear to be coming back from the dead to contradict the word of God and to lead people to believe the lie. But when we trust in God, when we trust in Jesus, we have nothing to fear. The truth will set us free. Be ready for Jesus. Speak life. Live love. Until next time. Maranatha. You gotta stay awake because nobody knows a day or time. No. The trumpet's gonna blow and the skies are gonna open wide. Oh yeah. He's coming for us just like he told us. It's been a long wait but there's a new day. And we're gonna sing Jesus is coming back, Jesus is coming back.